I don't know why, I was just taken back seven years ago, just as I was singing there. It was seven years ago, maybe because a friend had texted me this week, sent me some pictures when we as a church went to Israel. And what a marvelous time that was. It's hard to believe it uh, was seven years ago. We had a trip planned a couple years ago, and COVID knocked that out. So we're hoping that we could go again. But it was on that trip that we took that circuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We took the circuit of even where we would call it the airspace of the Lord Jesus Christ was on that Thursday night as he inaugurated the, the service that we're having today with the bread and the cup. It's a sobering time to walk into the building, the airspace, that they believed that that took place and when he uh, put that into action. And then to be in Gethsemane as well, just across on the side of the Mount of Olives, to be in that very garden, at least in the airspace where he prayed. And on three separate occasions, he came back to find the disciples excuse me, sleeping for all that was surrounding them. And then to be at the garden tomb where they believe he was set, uh, placed, if you will, and where he rose on the third day. But I was thinking of that night on Thursday when he put into place the Lord's Supper, when he took the bread and when he took the cup. And then when Paul repeated that phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and quoting the Lord Jesus Christ when he said, this is the bread and this is the cup. And, and uh, Jesus said, do this in what? In remembrance of me. So, so really all that I say is leading up to that point. For you, if you're in Christ, if you're old enough to partake of communion and to remember his death on our behalf, Jesus said, as whenever you take this, you are proclaiming his death until he comes. And so there's a, there's a thought there that we proclaim his death. And so though Friday was in many ways a sobering day beyond imagination, it is also a time where we partake of the elements and proclaim his death until he comes. Just briefly tonight, if you'd open your Bible to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, there's so many different focuses that we could take on the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, I want to bring you to John 19, where there's a, a trio in there of words, and we certainly won't do all of it, but that he was crucified in chapter 19. He was dead, if you will, when he breathed his last, and he was buried, crucified, dead, and buried is what John gives us in John chapter 19. But behind all of that, I would say, was the fulfillment of prophecy. And the fulfillment of prophecy 
was that we might be strengthened in our faith. Though he certainly suffered at the hands of wicked men, suffered at the hands of evil men, certainly died in our place as our substitute, prophecy was being fulfilled in the whole account. Look at 1924. It says there in John, when they, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And then this phrase, if you underline that, was to fulfill the scripture that they divided my garments among them to fulfill scripture. If you glance down at 1928, the death of Jesus, after this Jesus knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. It's kind of amazing to look at it. Glance down at 1936, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, and in that account, not one of his bones will be broken. So, beloved, while the greatest injustice was committed against our Savior, God was accomplishing your salvation, my salvation, through Christ's death. And so that's the focus. I don't, we won't look at crucified, dead, and buried. We'll just look at crucified, mainly in verses 17 down through 30. And there are a number of prophecies fulfilled, as I mentioned, to strengthen your faith. And I'll just designate these prophecies, if you're children listening, just by a single word, and I believe you'll catch a composite picture of what the Lord did for us. The, the first designation is the word crucified, crucified. Look at the text in verse 17. It's, it says at the end of 16, they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place uh, he said, called the, the place called of the skull, which in, in Aramaic it is called Golgotha. In verse 18, there, that simple phrase, they crucified him. So we just capture these moments and snapshots and in just a word, they crucified him. Now, of course, we know that he was crucified. They, of course, did not stone him. And this was, in essence, the fulfillment of prophecy. I could take you many places, but you remember in John's Gospel, in chapter 3, verse 14, it says there, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so the Son of Man must be, what? Lifted up. It was prophesied weeks, months before that the Son of Man would be lifted up. Jesus said this in John 12, which wasn't too far before this event in verse 13. He said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. And he said this, John says, to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And so you say, well, what prophecy does it fulfill? Well, certainly Jesus was giving that instruction throughout John's gospel. But it's a messianic psalm. 
that the psalm said that he would be crucified. It's Psalm 22. If you can look that up, you're welcome to. Some of this will come up on the screen. Here it says in Psalm 22, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs have surrounded me. There's a com- company of evildoers that has encircled me. And now this phrase, you could see it. It says that they pierced my hands and my feet. He was, beloved, crucified. Because centuries before this event, the psalmist said that the the coming Savior would be crucified. And so as you walk through this, you're seeing the fulfillment of prophecy that nothing was out of order, nothing came by way of surprise, all of it came to exact detail. But there's a second fulfillment of prophecy here. I'll just call it condemned. Not only was he crucified, but he was condemned. Look at verse 18. It says they crucified him, and 1918 of John says, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Now often we say there was Golgotha, there was the place of the skull, there was three crosses, and in fact, Alistair Begg had a famous sermon, he was the man in the middle, but you ask the question, why was that so? James read earlier in the evening, 53, 1 through 6 of Isaiah, but 53, 12 says there that he was numbered with the transgressors. That's what it says there. So you say, oh, there's two guys, one on the right and one on the left. They were hurling abuse at him early on the cross. One, of course, came to know him and he told him, today you'll be in paradise with me. But just have you ever thought about it? Why were there two robbers, one on his right and one on his left? Because he was numbered with the transgressors. It says in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, 16, a company of evildoers encircles me. Now certainly that could have been the soldiers around him, but I would submit that it was these two. You say he was crucified. Yes, he was condemned. He was condemned with a group of evil men. At least one came to Christ. But I just want you to know all these details were foreordained in Scripture for your redemption. Nothing was out of control. Nothing took him by surprise. This was the plan of Almighty God. There's a third prophecy that's fulfilled. We're just flying high here. Verse 19, Pilate also, you know this, wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king, there it was, of the Jews. Obviously, there he, Pilate is giving a, a sarcastic jab. I've driven by Nazareth you would be not moved. You would think, really? 
I mean, it was an insignificant Galilean town. And here, Pilate, in that inscription, a crucified man from an insignificant town claiming to be a king, absolutely outrageous. In fact, the Jews said, look in verse, uh, where is that? It's in verse uh, 21, uh, 1921, the chief priest of, of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. But the truth is, beloved, as we know it, all through John's gospel, he was the king. He is the king. Look back just for a chapter, uh, one chapter at chapter 18 in verse 33. It was there that Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he went on to answer about his kingdom. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered in 1836, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. He's talking in that language. Look at verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? This is who he is. They wrote it. The Jews wanted him to change what, they, what he wrote. But he said, what I have written, I have written. In fact, look at chapter 19, our present text in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In other words... He made himself to be a king because he, he was the king. Look down at verse 14. Now it was on the preparation, the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. He announced him as a king. And they cried out in 1915, Away with him and away with him. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar, so he delivered him over for, them, for him to be crucified. But the truth is, beloved, this is prophecy. In John 1, do you remember when Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. In John chapter 12, when he came into the triumphal entry, they cried out and said this, and you probably remember this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. But all of this goes back because Gabriel, the angel, at his birth, said this in Luke 1, the Lord God Watch the language. We'll give him a throne of his father David, a throne. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Listen, when Pilate called him a king, it was the truest statement that he had ever made. He truly is the 
king of kings and the Lord of lords. So he was crucified. He was condemned. He was thirdly proclaimed a king because that's what the scriptures say. Fourth, maybe just this word divided, divided. Look down at the text again in 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, you know this, and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but his tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. They divided his garments. You say, well, why would they do that? They're just senseless. They're just wicked. As, he, as he's beaten to a pulp, as he has a crown of thorns thrust into his head, as he had the back stripped off his skin by the fillet that took him in his lashes that was committed to him, and now they're dividing his clothes. Evidently, that's what soldiers do. But you say, why did they do that? Uh, here's why. It's a messianic fulfillment. Look at the next slide in Psalm 22:18. I think that will come up. I hope so. They divide my garments among them. So why did that happen? Because God is in perfect control. That though he suffered greatly for you, nothing would deter God and his son from going to the cross. Even down to the minute detail that they took his garments. And then look at verse 24. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to, he, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And here's that second piece. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Why did they cast lots? Because it was prophesied. I think amongst the many things that John is showing us here is this was all preordained. Number five, and just a couple, one more. He was pierced. He was pierced. If you, if you look at verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus, watch this, were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women, the other gospel says that John the gospel, excuse me, John the apostle was there. You know, it's interesting, obviously, you know that his mother is there. I think it's somewhat intriguing that the first time we meet Mary, his mother in John, she's at the wedding feast where he turned water into wine. And here at the close of this gospel, she's at the foot of the cross and will be seen preparing for his burial. There couldn't be a greater contrast. While the soldiers profit from the Lord's death, the women wait, if you will, in faithful devotion to the one whose death, at least at this point and this time, they can still only see as a tragedy. And it's unbelievable that this next statement is in the text. Look at verse 26. While he's suffering greatly, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold 
your son. And then it says that he took her home. Obviously, John the Apostle, here's a tender provision for his mother. You say, where's Joseph? Well, we don't know. We presume that Joseph has passed away by this time. We know from John 7, 5 that his brothers were not believing. So John the Apostle takes her to his own home. And it may seem mundane and an hour of great sacrifice, but the beauty of the Savior's love and compassion for his soon-to-be widowed mother during his own excruciating pain was incredible. Now, what prophecy does it fulfill here? Well, certainly if you glance down at 34, but one of the soldiers, it said, there's our word, pierced his side with a spear, and at once they, there came out blood and water. You remember the account, still citing Psalm 22, they pierced my side, they pierced him to make sure that he was dead. And so as that spear went in, without one of his bones being broken, um, it was confirmed that he was dead. But there's also a little bit more, and I'll capture this, maybe at least with this scene of these four women, is when Jesus was taken into the temple at his birth, and Mary was told this by Simeon, I think it's Luke 1 or 2, this child, Simeon told her, imagine this, you just give birth to this child a number of days later. They're in the temple, if you will, dedicating him. And Simeon said, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then Simeon told her this, and a sword will pierce your own soul soul too. So obviously it was fulfilled in the piercing of him up on the cross, but I have to see the fulfillment of prophecy from 33 years prior where that sword will pierce her own soul as well. And so he was pierced. I mean, imagine that prophecy 30 years later. The crowds were mocking. The, they were taunting the, the soldiers were gambling. Mary suffers in agony, realizing the sword that pierced her own soul was prophesied at his very birth in Luke's gospel. And then the last word, the last prophecy fulfilled by a word is just the word quenched. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, I love this line, knowing just omnisciently that all was now, what? finished, he said, watch this, to fulfill the scripture, what did he say? I thirst. Now, knowing that all was finished, he said, I thirst. But I think it's more than that. He knew that by saying, I thirst, scripture was being fulfilled. You say, why? Because look at the 
the next line in verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there and they put it on a sponge uh, full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth. Jesus knew that by saying, I thirst, would prompt soldiers to give him a drink. You say, well, why did he say that? Well, to fulfill prophecy. In Psalm 69, 21, he said there in a messianic psalm, give me sour wine for my thirst. The idea, you say, what's sour wine? It's cheap, in essence, vinegar, okay? Why did he say that? Because it was fulfilling the scripture. I think it's fascinating. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel that prior to this, right here at this time on the cross, they tried to give him gall, okay? G-A-L-L, gall. But he refused. He said, what's gall? Well, gall's not sour wine. Gall was a, a sedative to diminish the pain because crucifixion was so horrifying. And he refused gall because he wanted the full impact of his suffering. He didn't want to deaden his senses. But here he takes sour wine. And I believe he not only didn't want to deaden the, the horrendous pain of crucifixion, but even more than that, he refused gall because according to Psalm 69, 21, they would give me sour wine for my thirst. Say, why? It was prophesied. Now, listen, I'm not trying to take away from his suffering on our behalf, but I do want you to know he's in perfect control. Perfect control. The whole way. All of it. He knew it back in Mark 8 and Mark 9. The Son of Man's going to go into Jerusalem. He will be, you know, abused and scorned and beaten and placed on the cross. And he knew it the whole time. And here he said, I thirst. Why? Because he's fulfilling Psalm 69, 21. He didn't take the gall because it doesn't speak about gall in 69, 21. So look what happened and We'll go to the Lord's table. When Jesus had received, fulfilled the scripture, the sour wine, he said, it is finished, you know that, to telestai, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Now, listen, I don't want to make, uh, I don't, I don't want to make too much of the details, but I do want to get right what John said, okay? Look at it again. He bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. John does not say that he died. He died, and then his head slumped over. It's not what it says. He bowed his head, which is an attitude of submission, and then he, paradokin is the word, gave over his spirit. You say, well, Scott, why does that matter? It's important to know, beloved, just as we go into communion, that when he died, he died, and he willed himself, if you will, to die. Then he gave up his spirit. And I believe even the text in John 10, 17, where you know it, where he said, I lay down my life, I lay down my life. 
Nobody's going to take it. He says that I may take it up again. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. In other words, he died voluntarily for you. And then he cried, you remember, it is finished to Telestai. At least in Mark 15, it says that when he said to Telestai, it is finished, he was shouting. And it's finished. What's finished? His work. His destiny was fulfilled. You know, sometimes if you go back into the Roman culture, sometimes with taxes, if the taxes were found, if, or the, the tax paper was paid, it would say to Telestai in stamped or in the insignia or the wax ring, and it meant paid in full. When he cried out, it is finished, it was paid in full. So here's what John shows you. He's crucified, he's condemned, He's proclaimed to be the king. His garments were divided. He was pierced. Mary's soul was pierced. He was quenched. And the reason is it's all bound up in the scripture. Beloved, think about it this way. Sin was paid for. The law's demands were fulfilled. Guilt was forgiven. Salvation accomplished. Love demonstrated. Mercy lavished upon us. Satan defeated, it is finished, amen? I mean, what a great truth. In fact, the writer in the book of Acts says this, does it say there in 3.17, I know, the, the one preaching, that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that Christ would, what, suffer, he thus, what, fulfilled, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Listen, and, I, and I'm going to say this from a human standpoint, from a human standpoint, the trial, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was the greatest crime, the greatest tragedy in the history of the world. But from the divine standpoint, it was the fulfillment of prophecy and the perfect accomplishment of the will of God. So listen, it's Good Friday. This Jesus, the writer said in Acts 2.23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Say, so why did he die? The plan and the foreknowledge of God. And then the writer comes back in 2.23 and it says, you crucified. So on the one hand, God planned it. It was foreordained, but they crucified him and they bear the responsibility. You say, how does that work? It's both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. But here's the crucifixion of our Lord. Here's the fulfillment of prophecy. And I said it this way at the beginning, to strengthen your faith. To strengthen your faith. Listen, if he got it right at the beginning of the world, 
and this went down to the exact plan of God, then I want you to know he's going to get the end right as well, is he not? After I finish the book of Ephesians, I'm going to start the book of Daniel. Because I want you to see what happens in Daniel 9 and how the Lord not only was promised in Genesis 3.15, he lived, he died, he was raised, he ascended, but it's going to end exactly the way that the scriptures say. So, if, if that's true, just by implication to you, what are you worried about right now? I don't know, pastor, I just, this is just unraveling on me. Listen, nothing's unraveling on you. You say, but I didn't know this year would look like this, and I had this death, and this trial, and this financial problem. Listen, I want you to know that God's working all things together for your, what? Good. All things together, even the greatest trial. Listen, if the greatest crime ever committed against the greatest person was the plan of God, then don't lose sight that what you're going through is also under the perfect plan of God. But listen, as we go to communion, think about this. And I've got it in my old New American Standard. <laughs> Second Corinthians 5.21. You might know it by heart. He made him who, what? Knew no sin, right? He made him who knew no sin, right? So that he would step in your place so that he would give you his righteousness and so that we would be standing in a justified position before the Lord. But it all happens at the point of the cross. And so listen, it's Good Friday. It's hard because it's sobering. You say, well, the soldiers crucified him, yes. You say, well, Pilate put him on there and washed his hands from it, yes. You said it was the Jews who had shouted earlier a week, Hosanna on Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and the frenzied mob is shouting on Friday, crucify him. And yet, it's, it's our sin that put him there as well. He died for you. He, he, if you will, took his body to death, shed his blood for you. So would you bow your head?